Now I'm going to introduce our guest speaker, Dave Giles. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him in case you're newer to Karis Fellowship, like I am. I've just been here a year and a half, and I've heard a lot about Dave Giles. Uh, Dave has been the executive director of Encompass Worldwide Partners. That's the mission agency of the Karis Fellowship. He's been the executive director for uh, well since the year 2000. There's a reason you become an executive director. He was serving as a missionary in Argentina since 1987, and they recognized his uh, that he excelled in some in some certain areas. He's extremely gifted, and I've enjoyed getting to know him a lot. Now, if you've been around the Karis Fellowship, then you probably know uh, Dave and Sue. I learned this morning that he was actually an associate pastor of this church in 1984 through 87 before that. How many people remember those days? I see some hands out there. So it's going to be a joy to uh, welcome him back to fill the pulpit this morning. One more neat thing to know, though, is uh, last year we were going to have him come up and speak uh, during the chili cook-off. And it just didn't work out with COVID restrictions and some other things. But we see God's providence because this year he's concluding a seven-week mission sermon series where we're praying and identifying God's leading for this church in the world and in our neighborhood uh, for the future, for fu our future vision as a church of, of Jesus Christ. And uh, so I'm really, I see God's hand working and why he brought Dave this year. And the last thing he wanted me to say is, we talked about things in Africa that we're looking at partnering with, and we asked him to, to tell, to incorporate the James Gribble story, you'll hear what that is, uh, into today's message. And he said, you know, I told that story to this church somewhere around 2005. So that people know that I'm not getting senile and forgot about that, would you just mention, you requested this, and we do, we request this great enduring story but with an updated twist to speak to a new congregation in a new era going forward into a new future. Uh, would you join me in giving a, a Dave a big Community Grace welcome as he comes? Well, thank you, uh, Pastor Reg. It's been great to get to know him. We're so excited about the direction the church is going. Sue is here with me. Would you stand? And uh, yeah, she has... She and I will celebrate 40 years of uh, marriage here coming up January 2nd, and uh, wow, a lot of those years have been connected with you as a church. So uh, Pastor Reg talked about the time which, uh, while we were in seminary, when we started coming here, I came on staff. I was youth pastor for some of you that are out there. See me later for stories, because uh, yeah, but you've aged well, I just want you to know. And uh, uh, then we were sent to Argentina, then brought back here, and we're very active with the church here during the 12 years we were here before we uh, took the mission down to Atlanta, but very, very glad to be back and very glad to be a part of the chili cook-off. Wow. And uh, looking forward to today. I want to mention that after telling this story, uh, lots of places in the world, literally, and uh, around the U.S., we finally took time a year ago to put it in book form, and that's available. I think it's $10 discount price to you, but I want you to know, if you want to know all the details, they're pretty much in this book, and any proceeds from the book just help, uh, are actually dedicated to least reached peoples in Africa, so you can help support us that way uh, as those funds go there. But I am so honored to tell you today 
what I consider to be one of the most powerful and moving missionary stories that I have ever come across. And it really has to do uh, with this man whose name is uh, James Gribble. And the passage here, we're going to see his life really becomes a living example of what Jesus Christ shared with his disciples and through them to us today. And of course, Jesus illustrates this in the most excellent way possible, but James Gribble does pretty well as well. So would you read this from John 12? Read the passage together with me this morning, okay? What's it say? Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So who is this James Gribble, born uh, in 1883 on a farm and uh, has the opportunity, like a lot of young people, when he reached 18, to leave the farm and uh, migrate to the nearby big city, which in this case was Philadelphia. And he actually has the opportunity to get a job. So he's a conductor on a streetcar. Imagine this, you're 18, 19, 20 years old now, and he's in the big city, far away from mom and dad, steady income, feeling like he really is on top of the world, until one uh, Saturday evening, a tragedy strikes, a woman is getting off the streetcar and is caught underneath it and is killed. Now life's not looking quite so rosy to this 20-year-old, right? And at that moment, he cries out to God and he says, God, if you bail me out of this one, I will serve you. Have any of you ever done that prayer before? Lots of people have done that prayer over the years. And in this case, he actually meant it. And what's so interesting is that his streetcar used to go down this street in Philadelphia. Now, this is one of the very few pictures we're going to show you, which was taken more recently. But I point out that you can still see the streetcar rails there, can't you? And the cobblestones. And he went in front of that, in front of the Brethren Church. So it's a part of the family that this church is a part of. And he'd been driving his streetcar by that. And when Sunday morning came, he stumbled into this church because he needed to know God. And he gave his life to Jesus Christ that morning. By evening, he learned they were having a baptismal service and said, can I be baptized? Now this guy, you get the pattern here? He moves pretty quick, doesn't he? Saturday night's the crisis. Sunday morning, he becomes a believer. Uh, Sunday night, he's baptized. Monday, he, this, I get this from his diary. He's reading his diary and he comes across, he's reading the Bible. He writes this in his diary and he comes across this passage Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. And he says, It's as though a voice spoke to me at that moment and said, James, put your name in right there. By Monday night, he's banging on the door of the pastor and says, I think God's called me to be a missionary to Africa. Wow, it doesn't normally go that fast, okay? He's not even 48 hours old in his faith, but he's already convinced that he has a missionary call. Well, obviously the pastor knew it's time to slow this guy down just a little bit. We have to train him, disciple him, prepare him, and that's what he does over the next four years. But by 1908, now he is ready to board ship, this ship actually, to head off to Africa. And he wanted to serve with what today is called Encompass World Partners, our mission. But we were just getting ready to start something in Argentina, which is where Sue and I were sent from this church years ago to serve. Not that far back, okay? But... uh, yeah, and, uh, and so there's interesting connections here, and so we're not ready to go to Africa, so with the church's blessing, 
he actually joins the Africa Inland Mission, and he's heading across there, and, and I want to introduce you to a couple of his uh, teammates. On the right hand is Mr. Herbert, okay, he's the head of the Africa Inland Mission, going out to, to help establish the station. Ah, but this woman on the left, her name is Florence Newberry, she's a medical doctor, and he thinks she's pretty sharp, okay, uh, but he's very shy at this point. And so just keep her in mind because she's going to be important here in the story. Uh, but uh, he's just has her eye on her at this point. All right. But these are the three that are being sent to join a team in this central eastern part of Africa, which today we know, of course, as Tanzania and uh, the surrounding uh, countries there. And so they're there. It's Kenya as well. And we really can't do justice to the first six years that these folks are there helping to carve out a mission station to reach least reach people, which you guys have been learning about over the last six weeks or so. But I do want to give you a few highlights. First off, here's James. Uh, he grew up on a farm. You remember me saying that? And so he's very good with his hands. And every pioneer mission station needs somebody like James because he can fix anything, do anything. Here he is in front of the workshop that he built. But what's so interesting about this picture is he's taking his own photograph. So you look at his left hand, he's got the string there. You guys are looking at the world's first selfie. You thought you invented that. This guy did it back in 1908, okay? And we're grateful for that because almost all the pictures I show you today, he literally took. And we've got those preserved and we're grateful for that. But he's there, and his heart's warming up toward Florence. And the problem is that Florence is a medical doctor and really, really busy, and he can't figure out how to get any time alone. So what does this enterprising young man figure out to do to be able to talk privately with a doctor? He pretends to be sick. I like this guy. Can you imagine the encounter? He comes into the consult room, consulting room, and she says, Oh, James. I'm so sorry to hear you're ill. What's wrong? Oh, it's my heart. I don't know what he said, okay? But uh, here he expresses his love to her, and she says, uh, time out, uh, because he didn't understand. She had fallen in love with a guy, was engaged to be married to him. He did not sense God's call. She knew God wanted her in Africa. Difficult separation. She's still trying to heal. Doesn't know if any guy should be in her life. And here comes James. Wow, it is so critically important that we as parents be praying for our kids because the partners that God brings into our lives, like this one right here, been on a 40-year missions journey with me. We, we want people brought together who sense that common call. So she says to him those famous words, let's just be... Ah, did it happen to you? Okay, <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, so anyway, but James, uh, he's not going to be deterred from his passion he says, we look around here and we see that there are people that need Christ, but there are people obviously farther into Africa who need Him even more here because there's no witness and He wants to be this pioneer. And by 1910, He's actually set off on an investigative journey into the heart of that region of Africa. His companion gets sick, goes back. James goes on alone. He finds people and he really is starting to figure out that this is going to be an amazing commitment. In fact, he pens this prayer, and I think it's one of the most amazing simple prayers I've ever heard and read, but what does it really mean? 
Can you say that with me? You don't even have to mean it when you read it with me, okay? But if you do, watch out what God's going to do. Let's read it together. Oh God, purge me and send me and put me always into the very thickest of the fight. I love that about this guy, and I love that about missionaries today around the world who say, let's not take the easy path. Let's go, God, just wherever I'm supposed to be, I'm willing to be sent there. And so he has that prayer, and he's starting to establish a place where other missionaries can join him because he's all alone. A couple months go by, and he becomes sick with malaria. He's all alone. It's late at night. He's convinced he's going to die because he's that sick. And in his delirium, he has a dream. And in the, in the dream, these, this is what happens. I mean, uh, the, he's got God speaking to him. And he wrote this down in his diary uh, later on. He said, I saw pass before me then a panorama of the tribes of West Central Africa. And I heard a voice speaking, thou shalt be instrumental in carrying the gospel to these. Then I knew that I was not to die, but to live. Then I knew that I had yet many a weary mile to walk for the Lord Jesus. It is exactly with me as though I had been raised from the dead for the evangelization of those tribes. And day by day I know not where my path may lead, but I will follow on. And he recuperates from malaria after being at the brink of death. And to him it's like a resurrection. Now, years later we discovered that there was a second part of his dream He didn't tell anybody about it, but guess who appears? And he hears a voice saying, take her, she's yours. And he got got better a lot faster than we would have expected. And heads back to where Florence is and proposes again. And she says, James, remember your promise. Keep your distance. Oh, man, this poor guy. He's insistent, but he's not making much progress uh, on that front. But those guys ultimately do get married God intervenes, and so here they are. I told you i got to go quick on this part of their history. You can read a lot more about it if you're interested. But here they are getting married in Africa and starting a pretty cool ministry because she's the medical doctor and he is the, uh, the evangelist. And I love this fact. Here's the house that he built for his bride. All right, and you guys want to live there? It's thatch on the outside, lined with tent on the inside. It's got four rooms in it. And on the right-hand side, if you could see it, that's Florence, pretty proud of her new home. It cost James $8, okay? I'm going to outline it for you so you can see a little bit. But these guys, I mean, this is hard. And I wouldn't volunteer to go there. You might not either. But here we have a couple that believes that God has brought them together to penetrate uh, Africa with the message of the gospel among the least reached. And, uh, and some pretty cool things are in the, on the horizon for them, or so we assume. Four months goes by as they're married. She comes down with appendicitis, which becomes peritonitis. It gets infected. And I can't unpack all this, but it's a very, very tenuous, long story where God intervenes, saves her from the brink of death. But the doctor basically says, your wife will die if you stay in Africa. Go back to the U.S. How do you process that? God brought us here. We're committed. We're married. This is a team. This is ideal. And now God says no. Have you had any of those things in life? If you think pursuing God's call for you is good, you're right. If you think it's easy... Let me tell you, there's going to be some significant bumps along the way. 
And so they have to trust God. They come back to the U.S. Again, this is all the quick part of the story. I've got to keep going here because there's so much more. But at that time, well, just read the passage with me because this is so, so helpful to us. And it puts these kind of passages in perspective. What does it say? What then can we say? Let's read it together. What then can we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And they believe that. And they come back to the U.S. and they're here for three years. Uh, her health is recuperating. They're convinced God's going to allow them to come back. But I'm glad that God gave them this chapter because now they're traveling from coast to coast visiting churches like this one and trying to help folks to see that God has a much bigger plan for the world than what's happening locally or even regionally. They're trying to awaken our churches to the responsibility and the opportunity of missions. And as I've read all the stuff he wrote about that, I see that he really had two messages. You can boil it down to that. First, James was telling people, missions is an honorable task. Now, it's not the only task. It's not for everybody in the sense of going overseas like this. We all should be a part of it. But he is helping people realize this is honorable. This is an honorable task. And he goes on to write about that. He says, to preach the gospel in Ubangi Shari, which is where they want to go now, is a privilege angels would leave heaven to enter into if only they had a chance. We've been given this honorable task. And a second thing that he said then is, well, you know, it really in some way is everyone's responsibility because look what he says. God has only one plan for this age. And that is to take out from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation a people for His name. Have you not heard that for the last six weeks? I hope, it's, I hope it's really becoming a part of your DNA. God only has one plan. And unless our work conforms to this plan, it is not the work of God, even though it may seem to us to be a good work. Now, I've already said He's not asking everyone to go, but He's asking everyone to be a part of it. And one of the cool things your church is doing is just saying, let's take the next three, four, five months and get on our knees and say, God, what's the part you want for us to have in this today? And some of you should go and some should send and release and some should pray and all should pray and some could go. You know, oh, we, you guys are going to be unpacking that for some time to come. That was his message to folks in the States. Well, Florence does recuperate her health and actually gives birth to a beautiful young daughter, uh, Marguerite. And uh, Marguerite, I love the picture because James talks about being so awkward as a dad and he just looks completely awkward in this picture, doesn't he? It's like, I don't know what, if, this, if this China doll is going to break or not. But, uh, you know, and she's the doctor and the mom and she's pretty comfortable there. But they are blessed with this girl and with her and now and two uh, new recruits, two missionary women. Others wanted to go. They'll come soon, but they couldn't be on the pioneer uh, trip over there. They are now headed back to Africa but they're now going with our movement. And, so, and they're also going to a different part of Africa as pioneers. And so here they are setting sail. Now if you know much about history, you know that something was going on in 1918 that we call today uh, World War I, right? So they hoped to get on board one ship, missed it, and it was sunk. They hoped to get on a second ship, but then James didn't quite feel peace about it was glad because later it caught fire and just about killed everybody. They got on the third ship, okay. <laughs> and the third ship made it, but had to take a circuitous route because of German U-boats and so forth. But they arrive now in Africa, and here's the region that James believes that God had placed on his heart in that vision and that dream 
And this is what they're praying for. And so the story is how they're going to get there. I put this picture up there because this is literally his map that I took a picture of. And come visit me in my office there and I'll show it to you because I have that on the wall right outside. This is the map he prayed over and this is the map that, he, that guided him on this. And we still have it today. And we're going to kind of follow that now as we zoom in a bit closer. So those guys, you know, they arrive on this uh, western coast of Africa. They take the first little steamer they can to start their way up the, the, big, uh, the big important river there, the Congo River. And uh, they get on there and they discover there's no cabins here. We're going to be on here for 36 hours. We've got to protect our stuff. And what, where's Marguerite? You know, because there's no rails on this little thing. So they put their stuff on there, and this, that's the first thing. The second thing they do is tie a rope around Marguerite so she doesn't fall overboard. So this is kind of crazy. This isn't quite what they expected. But uh, they make their way up, and they come to Matadi there. You can't quite read that, but here's where they have their first exposure to the people group, to the least reached people that they believe God's called them to reach. And, uh, and, John, and, uh, and James writes this about them in his, in his letter back to us here in the States. He says, bear in, in your mind in your continued prayers that we are about to enter one of the hardest fields in the world. The gospel must, must be preached here. If we fail to stand true to the Lord, He'll be obliged to use others to do this work. And I like his perspective. He says the gospel's got to go there. We might fail. God, though, is going is to prevail. But we want to be faithful. Would you guys pray for us? Well, at that point, they're able to take the new Congo Railroad and head up farther to Brazzaville, but they're still wanting to go farther in, and they run into another obstacle called the French government and bureaucracy where they just are going to be stuck for some time because they're not getting permission to go inland. And that's another great reminder as we think about missions and as we get excited about things like least reach people groups and all, there's a lot of obstacles, and sometimes that's government, and sometimes it's paperwork, and it's visas, and those kind of things. We have to deal with all that mundane stuff if we're going to be able to pursue the vision that God has before us. And they really run into a wall when they get there uh, because the government's not going to give them permission right now. Housing is complicated. They've got to live in their tents for a while. And I put Marguerite's picture up here because I want to remind us that it's one thing for adults to say, I'm going to Charge hell with a squirt gun. You know, I'm going to go anywhere, anytime for Jesus. But there's kids that are involved that are making a sacrifice. And our prayer for missionary kids and raising up kids that can do this as well is just a big part of this challenge. And so they've got a little daughter uh, they've, got, they've got to be concerned about as well. But here's what James writes. He says, Whatever may be the duration of our stay here, the Spirit hasn't given us liberty to turn elsewhere. We are knocking at the door of one of the greatest, least reached mission fields in the entire world. And so we just got to persevere. Well, months go by, and by that time, uh, Myrtle May, who was one of the two nurses with them, just said, she was an activist person, and said, I'm tired of waiting, I love you guys, but I'm going to join another mission for a while and help them and be a nurse. And so now the party's down to three adults and a child, and, uh, and James is reflecting on just what it means to be willing to wait on God. And he says this, he says, you know, we're going to wait on in patience, counting it a privilege, knowing, would you, would you follow this as I read it? Because I don't like this, okay? Because I'm an activist kind of guy. What does he say? Knowing those who are best at waiting are best at serving also. You might be at a stage in life 
where God's just saying, it's not quite time yet, it's time to wait. Wait for my timing. Myrtle May, I don't know if she's right or wrong, but she's decided to leave, and these other guys are going to continue on. Well, good news comes. They've been there about 11 months, and another family finally arrives, and this is the Rollier family, and think about it. Now, uh, little Marguerite has some playmates, and in fact, I actually have on our files the, uh, the, the passport photos of this family, so it's kind of fun when we have that stuff, so you can get to know the Rollier family just a bit. He spoke French fluently, which, the, which really helped with the, with the paperwork and all. These guys, by the way, the mom and dad, were immigrants to the U.S., that God raised up and sent as missionaries through us to Africa. God bless the immigrants here. I know we got a bunch uh, listening to me today. Uh, we love you guys. And God has this message for you as well. And uh, they responded to the call and went out there. They weren't idle during this time, but it sure did feel like it drug on for a long time. And here's the missionary team. And they finally just called this, what did they call it? Yeah, because they said this is, all we ever do is wait. Now they're studying language and they're preparing but, you know, a long time goes by till they finally get are granted permission at least to go farther inland. So it's a pretty exciting day for them. But here's what, what I think the Bible teaches us about periods like this from James 5. Why don't you read this out loud with me? Would you do that? What's it say? See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. And I want to tell you something I said to, to Pastor Reg and a few others when we met earlier today. If you guys are serious about least reached, you better be serious about being patient. The least reached are least reached for a reason. And these people were all least reached then, and they learned this is going to be a long, hard slog. It's worth it. But it's not going to happen fast. And we've got to be willing to persevere. But at least they're getting permission now to head further inland. So you can see they're working up the Congo River and then up the Ubangishari uh, River and so forth. And, and it's during that time, in fact, they're just on the next steamer a couple of days when uh, Mrs. Rollier is infected with malaria. And they're going through a really unhealthy place here. And she's tired and she gets sick. And one day after another goes by, chug, chug, chugging their way up this uh, Congo River and she's really getting ill, and five days into it, Mrs. Rollier dies. And so she leaves a grieving husband and two small girls, and we bury our first of a number of people in Africa on the side, her grades lost to us today, and they're like saying, what is God doing here? This is hard. In fact, James goes a little bit further, and he, uh, he says it this way, did ever, imagine him writing this in his diary, he says, did ever a party so weak make an advance so desperate against strongholds so formidable? Wow, what is God doing here? Florence writes in her diary, she says, we were only seven and three of us were children. Two of them now motherless. The other one not even four years old. But God has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the wise to confound the strong. So what they had going for them now is God. Nothing else. And a willingness to go on. And so they continue on this, uh, this journey and, and they decide we're going to do that. So many other adventures, you can read about them if you want. They finally get up to this city called Carnot where they hope to get permission to be able to establish their mission base. 
and uh, discover that they're not going to get permission there for some time either. And they're setting up their, their, uh, their you know, they didn't even know where we we're going to live. And, 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 and so God provides in different ways. I'll talk about that in a moment. But here's what James writes back to us in the States. He says, no one should think of coming here who is not prepared to suffer hardships such as he never dreamed of. The battle is hard. We are subjected to the fiercest fire of the adversary, but God is faithful. And all that we need to be cautious about is to be found abiding in Him. We will press on. Well, fortunately, someone loans them housing for a couple of months, but it's during that time that they discover that there is a man-eating leopard on the loose. Okay, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the kind of barriers that they're facing. This is just crazy. And, and uh, the leopards had learned to eat flesh because in the First World War, the Germans and French were killing each other and dead bodies there. And all the animals learned to like human flesh. And this, he literally, there's this, and he's raiding the villages. And James had been sleeping outside at night under a mosquito net. He decides he better move in at this point, right? I mean, he's brave, but he's not stupid, okay? And, uh, and so one night, he, they actually hear a scream and their guard is being hauled off into the brush by this leopard, and they chase the leopard away. You can see the guy. I mean, this is the world's biggest headache. Here, this guy's got... We patch him up and try to help him, but this is serious. And the French official feels pity on these Americans, uh, who, by the way, this is like a side note, the French didn't know what to do with us because they never... They, they did not have a category for anybody who would voluntarily go give their life in missions. They all thought that we were part of the American government sending spies there. They didn't have a category for missionaries, so they weren't sure what to do. So they're convincing them that they're real uh, because of these kind of, uh, this kind of perseverance. But he sends his troops out and they build a much better leopard-proof house for us. And it's during that time that uh, this leopard is actually going to be captured and killed and uh, they were nice enough to pose for James as he took a picture of it. So we have that today. But listen to what James has to write back uh, to us in the States. Uh, because he, he doesn't believe that Americans can understand the spiritual warfare that's going on. Maybe you're one of those very concrete people that don't understand. There's a pretty big battle going on, what we say, behind the veil. There's a spiritual war that is going on. And so he writes it this way. He's just explaining some African culture. He says, the man who consents to become a human leopard... Now wait a minute, what's that? Yeah, there's literally a man who is saying to, to, to Satan, I will become a human leopard. That's not him. But he's bound spiritually to this animal. Has the direction of the leopard in the bush. He exerts sufficient power over the beast to control his movements causing him to visit those whom the man wishes to annoy. The power of cause is satanic. Many pay for his protection from the leopard. When the man consents to receive the diabolical power, he covenants with the devil to die simultaneously when the leopard dies. The night the leopard was killed, his human control died immediately. To you this must seem like an idle story, but it's not so to us. I've sat with, I've been in Africa just a lot of times. I've sat with Africans and said, I know what you might have told other white people, but I think I might understand there's more going on here. Would you tell me what's really going on? Whoa, you better not be going to bed that night without a nightlight. 
There's real stuff going on here. And he says, the more one comes in contact with heathenism, the more one understands the actuality of the diabolic supernatural powers of darkness. And wow, do we take hope then in the victory of Jesus Christ over the powers of darkness. Greater is He that is in you than is in the world. Read together with me this amazingly comforting passage from Ephesians 6. Can you read it out loud with me? What's it say? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There really is a war going on. So they've got this physical or this spiritual war going on manifested in that way. They also just have a lot of uh, personal complications. And yeah, I went the wrong way there, but let's keep going here. So Myrtle May, who had left them for a season, planned to join them again, she now dies. She becomes the second person we buried in Africa. And not only does Myrtle May die, but now Antoine Rollier says, I'm a widower. I've got two small girls. I just can't handle this. And nobody's blaming him, right? What would you have done? And he decides to go back to the States. He'll die a couple years later of African-related type illnesses, but that wasn't what drove him away. He just said, I don't want to do with these girls. And so uh, all these folks are now abandoning the party or they're dying. And, uh, and James says, our numbers have been greatly depleted. Two true followers of the cross have died and one has left us. But in spite of the genuine consecration and, and surrender required on the part of new recruits, I believe they'll come for the laying down of the lives of Mrs. Roller and Miss Snyder is the sowing of seed that is bound to bring forth the harvest of missionaries. Are you like ready for some good news in all this? Because then it's like everything's hard. Okay? Good news is coming. Real good news is coming. Because finally permission is granted for James to head up to Bozum, which is the place he believes that it appeared to him in his dream. Here he is setting off on a 12-week, 1,000-mile journey on his bicycle to scout out this area, covering roads like this. These are all his pictures. And having the opportunity now to see the place where he believes God has called for us as a movement to plant uh, you know, the first station and reach people who have never, ever heard about Jesus Christ before. And as he's on this journey, he comes across uh, this, uh, this place where he's convinced we're going to start the station but here's what he writes he said to us in the states he says if you were to see the need of the gospel in this country as i do the greatness of the country and the absolute denseness of the spiritual night you would not wonder at the opposition of the adversary but we're going to press on so he comes to this place called Bassai hill some of us have been there he decides to start a station up where the, the x mark is because he wants to get above some of the unhealthy line where the malaria is and the sleeping sickness and stuff and he's really convinced this is where we're supposed to be and then hears that Mar- that Florence is ill and must return to the states wow so he pedals back in time to say goodbye to his wife and to his daughter she needs to get back to get uh, some medical attention the daughter needs to go into school they have no options the single woman there, Miss Snyder, is not going to stay with them because he can't have this, man, this married man and this single woman together. And so he says goodbye to them and, and presses on. But as he's getting ready to return, 
he writes this in his diary. He says, you know, I've become convinced of this. That God is not going to look us over for medal degrees or diplomas, but for scars. That sounds a whole lot like God purge me and send me and put me always into the thickest of the fight. When push comes to shove, when all's said and done, yeah, I think it's what we've accomplished that's going to really matter for uh, eternity and not the titles and not the diplomas. Well, we've got to keep moving on this, but here he is, uh, his first day establishing what will become a significant outpost for ministry. He's setting it up. He hires his crew there of Africans. So here he is sharing the gospel when he can, uh, helping to, to clear some land. I mean, these guys have to move rocks out of the way. They actually burn rocks to break them up. And they've got to gather thatch for roof. And they've got to cut you know, lumber. They don't have any of these options at that point. To be able to carve out places where Westerners are able to live, at least stay healthy enough to be able to minister and, uh, and it's during this time that he gets really good news that now another wave of reinforcements is coming. So a single man and single woman arrive together. By the way, they get married a year later. So we're doing some real wedding stuff on the field here. We just had numerous times that this happened. And they're arriving and, uh, and Miss Snyder, who wasn't able to be there, is now able to join them. And so this ushers in a really special time in 1922 where they are building their station, getting ready for more recruits, steadily going out, learning language, sharing the gospel with people, and uh, praying to see some progress. Lots of challenges, but at least they're where they ought to be. And, uh, and then uh, comes the really, really cool day when they get to baptize the first nine Africans from those tribes, from three tribes actually, who we think are probably the first ones that ever became followers of Jesus. Imagine after all this labor, they get the opportunity to baptize these folks. By the end of the year, they had 37. And things have really grown up from that time. But as you guys talk about the least reached, and as you, re as you meditate on passages like Revelation 5.9, James Gribble just meditated on the time. He said, it's so hard here, but I know that we ultimately will succeed because I read the last book in the Bible. And it told us. We're going to succeed. Read together with me what it says there in Revelation 5. Let's say it out loud. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and from your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and they got to be a part of the very beginning of that in that region. I think we're probably seeing in this picture if we're in heaven someday before the, when we're in heaven someday before the throne of God, and we recognize that every one of the nations, the people groups of the world, has representation there. Every one of the language groups as well. Every one of the tribal groups. There's just multiple ways the Bible talks about it. But if Jesus says, who were the first? Some of the people who say we're the first, we got on the picture right here. That's pretty cool, isn't it? And we got to be a part of that because of the willingness to do hard things things. Well, uh, the year ends and, uh, and we're now coming into 1923. Good news because Florence is now healthy. She's coming back. She's bringing with her a promising young recruit by the name of Alan Bennett. They were so excited about Alan because he had a Bible school degree. None of these guys were trained that way and they needed him for leadership training because leaders were starting to emerge and they're excited and James goes out uh, to try to meet uh, uh, 
uh, them and, and meets Bennett for the first time and they're excitedly going to back to Bethsaida to, to orient him and he becomes ill and they put him in this hut and for 10 days, Alan Bennett is hovering between life and death and on the 10th day, he dies. What is God doing? And they bury him there. And he's the third guy that we buried. And I want to tell you what he died of. He died of the 1923 version of the coronavirus. He died of Spanish influenza. I have lost so many good friends and colleagues around the world to this disease. I'm so tired of it. Latin America, pastors that I've loved and worked with for years, they're dead today. Southeast Asia, Europe, Africa. Man, it's just not about us getting past this. It's about interceding for our brothers and sisters. Alan Bennett died of the Spanish influenza. And when I see this, it just reminds me of so many others today. But that's a topic perhaps to share at another time. Wow, may God deliver us from this. One of our missionaries wrote a word of encouragement and said to the team there, we shall never know why his life was taken when there is such a need for workers. But we all came to the mission field asking that whether in life or in death, we might glorify the Master. And now what do you do? Do you quit or do you move on? And they decided to press on. I love this photo because this is three tribal chiefs who have become Jesus' followers. And they're burning their amulets and they're burning their potions and they're saying, we're going to stand for Jesus. And when they do that, a whole tribe then typically comes with them. And so now we're beginning to pick up some steam. And so this is looking pretty good. Uh, we're praising God for what's happening here. Uh, and in fact, uh, this is what James wrote to us at this point, some pretty encouraging words, and we can still say these today. He says, our weak faith has been so honored of God that he's been pleased to put us in the very forefront of advanced work of missions in Africa today. It is truly significant that so small a mission as ours should occupy such a center of missionary influence. It all comes from God and to him be all the glory. He's just saying, I don't represent that big of a denomination in the States, and yet, look what we get to do. We get to be on the forefront. And churches like yours have sent lots of people to be on the forefront so that today, around the world, worshiping in churches that belong to our family, they're a part of the Karis Fellowship. We call it the Karis Alliance globally. Around the world, today, 19 out of 20 people who gathered to worship like you are did not worship in English. 95% of our movement today is outside of North America. Did you know that? Why? Because of people that said, I'm going to follow the least, I love your least reach focus. We're going to go to where the gospel isn't and we're going to be willing to pay the price. And people are still doing it today. We're sending people today to work among Afghan refugees. We're sending people today to work among the Japanese, the lar second largest least reached people group in the world. We've got people in Africa. We, got peop we only send people to least reached, okay? That's what we do. And that's why our partnership with the church is so sweet. But wow. Uh, well, time goes on, and uh, James now is not feeling well. It's 1923, and to make a terrible story short, he just got sick and died. And James Gribble now becomes the fourth person that we bury in Africa. And uh, what do you do when the founder and the visionary and the mobilizer is no longer with you? 
Well, if God's the one who's motivating you, you press on. He was 40 years old when he died. And we think, what could have happened if he'd have stayed? Well, I know what did happen. A lot of other people said, if he's gone, I'm going to take his place. And over the past hundred years, because we're celebrating 1921 is when we finally got there, so 2021, do the math, we're celebrating a hundred years of ministry in that region. And over the past hundred years, and some of those folks are here today, by the way, that you've sent out, I, I just thank them, we've sent more than 200 workers that have stayed at least two years. Some have gone for shorter amounts of time. We have, I calculated one time that we as a movement have invested at least 3,450 people years of people being there. If you calculate it in today's terms, as a movement, we, if we had to pay for it today, we've raised and spent on salaries $172 million so that people could take it to the least reach. This is not an inexpensive proposition, is it? But the question is, is it worth it? And I want you to watch this video and then help me answer the question whether you think it was worth it or not. Today in Central Africa, our movement is flourishing in seven countries. Nine Bible institutes and two graduate schools are preparing a new generation of leaders. Local and regional church planters are training both in the classroom and on the field. Over 140 of them are now planting new churches. Forty-three elementary schools are focused on educating orphans. A hospital, two surgical centers and 40 dispensaries are providing essential medical care. Leaders in government and education are learning to apply Christian ethics in the workplace. Tens of thousands of children are being discipled in hundreds of Sunday schools. And in 3,500 churches, men, Women and children are worshipping God in spirit and in truth.
movement of God continues to gain momentum because 100 years ago, a few courageous men and women said yes to God. Amen to that. Amen to that. Well, Dave asked me to personalize some applications. What's going on in this church that you can be a part of? Well, we're part of the Karis Fellowship. We've seen great growth in Africa. 3,500 churches is going to turn into 30,000 if we're obedient and God blesses. It's going to turn into 300,000. We last week launched a three and a half months season of prayer as a church. I just ask you to join in your small groups and your families missionary bookmarks let's just pray and then in january we're going to we're going to talk about what the answers to pr those prayers are that we perceive from god amen is that is that great last week we said prayer is the most we can do so please pray we also said our goal is to send out 50 people from our church over the next five years that's just the goal whether on short-term or long-term missions that means who, is, who are going to be the, the singles to go? Who are they gonna, who's going to be the young married couple that, that goes? Who's going to be the retiree that wonders what they're going to do now? Who's going to be the family that picks up and goes? And we want to be a sending church for all of that. We've got the Momentum Ministry Partners and Urban Hope Opportunities. We've got Africa and a whole lot of other things that God might call, call you to do. Everybody else, and I mean everybody, we send. And that's a big part of today. So um, I'm going to close in prayer. We're going to worship Praise God. We're going to do an international worship right now, and Raya is going to introduce what we're going to do. But let me just say a quick word of prayer. Lord, I pray that everybody here is so thrilled to be here and to be Christ-like in the way we treat each other, prioritize our lives, give generously, uh, support, send, and yes, even go cross-culturally. Right now, we worship you in the form of singing together. Uh, our praise is powerful in our lives and in the world, and so I pray your spirit moves here today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.